0: morning the scripture today is in romans chapter 3 verses 1 to 20 but first an editorial comment i'm not usually one for saying mechanical things and when we read we often say the word of the lord sometimes we say it as a question sometimes we say it as a declaration sometimes we say it with a searching heart but it's always thanks be to god that we have this word Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, and fear not, verse 21 is coming. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of a viper's the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The word of the Lord.
1: I might have to keep looking back. Uh, we've, we've lost our monitor until we get the, that projector uh, back online. So excuse me if I keep turning around away from you to check my spot. Our study, The Matter at Hand, is the Gospel of God. In Jesus Christ, two worlds come together. The world of humanity and time, and the world of divinity and eternity. In this we are offered, whoa, look at that, (laughs) that's okay, in this we are offered salvation that we would know full and abundant life. The gospel places a question mark before all of our ways of seeing the world and explaining the way that things are. We think we're so sophisticated because we live in 2015, but uh, a quick examination of time and history would show that maybe we're not that much different than the rest. And this question mark is before all of our worldviews and our ideas and our identities and our political ideologies. After the introduction of the gospel, we spent the past two weeks on the wrath of God, something that everybody loves to hear about. First, we looked at the wrath of God and how the wrath of God is a progression against self-centered living and thinking. Uh, What was outlined there in the beginning of Romans was that we turn away from glorifying God and we glorify created things instead, or we glorify even family things on this earth. And that as we glorify things that are not God, we begin to live for those things. They take over. And this is a progression of the wrath of God. And then last week we looked at the unrighteousness, not only of self-centered living, that was our introduction, but last week we looked at the unrighteousness of religion. And then the word that came into play was that before God all are unrighteous, there is no such thing as human righteousness. So you okay with that so far? Today what I want to do, and I have in my mind, if you want to say this at the beginning of a sermon, um, this is one of the most important sermons I've ever spoken uh, because it's a positioning sermon. I won't be here next week. Jen and I have our 23rd anniversary. I know, isn't that amazing? We've been married for 23 years. We were like 13 when we got married. But anyway, um, this is a positioning sermon for what comes next, but this is of utmost importance, or almost utmost. Utmost is what comes next. And what I want to do today for myself and for you is to draw huge lines between humanity and humanity and divinity between not God, which is you, and God, which is not you or me or anyone else here. All of this is for the getting ready. We are about to hear the most important news in all of history. It's remarkable that this news is often not even heard in religious company. But we're about to hear it, or at least that's my intent. We have to, and I'm aware that I have to as well, stop talking enough that we'll hear the news. And my belief is that it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we'll hear the news. So if it happens to be, in a sense, through my speaking, it's nothing of my doing, but it's the Holy Spirit of our God. But I have a few things to tell you before we fall silent. Where I'd like us to end today is to fall silent. I mean, we're going to share communion after. But that the posture of our lives and our spirit and our listening would be, and you have it in the text, that our mouths would be stopped and we would be silenced so that we can hear the good things of God. But first, we'll start where the text starts. With Barney. My son Aiden is, what, six foot three now? But it's just like... A, It seems like a few hours ago in my life that he was watching Barney. And I have the song still stuck in my head. I think I've sung it here before. You are special. You're the only one. You're the only one of you. And he dances around. And that's kind of what it looks like. There isn't another in the whole wide world who can do the things you do. Because you are special, special. And it's all great until then. But the next word brings a bit of a conundrum. You are special, special. And then everyone, everyone is special? <laughs> Seems less powerful at that point. That's where the text starts. You have a group of people, Jewish people, religious people, saying, well, is it, is it of any value, is it special at all to have the law? Because you've just told us, as I've outlined for you, that all are under God's wrath. There's no such thing as human righteousness. This idea of being special is something that we still live for. Particularly noteworthy. I got up early this morning to watch some of the tennis. I taped it last night in the middle of the night and then I got up super early to watch some of it. Uh, Djokovic against Andy Murray. These two guys, I I mean, it's unbelievable. I almost at times shed a tear when I see such uh, ability and giftedness. We love things in people to be particularly noteworthy. Even if it's a Everyone is special. And Barney's next words are, everyone. It's so inclusive. Even, this is like, what, 15 years ago. But it's so inclusive that everyone is special. The next line is, everyone in his or her own way. <laughs> it's just a beautiful lyric. Even if the specialness is, well, you know, you, you've got this particular talent. Uh, and everybody kind of has a talent, right? And we try to, we can identify ourselves like that. Human history. All of human history is the story of power and advantage. Human history is the display of power and advantage. One person over another, one nation over another. Human history can be told by the concept of rank. That we see ourselves or our culture or our society as somehow better or more or less than another. Cultures, empires, political systems, business, people... Economic systems, leaders, classes, your work environment. Are you the boss or do you report to the boss? You make, your, you make sense of the world often by rank. But listen to this. I, I, as I say this, <laughs> I don't think you're really going to hear it. Because the truth I'm about to say is so astounding that if we heard it, I think we might just all kind of explode. We make sense of the world by rank. But hear this terrifying truth. God is above all of this. We just sang, You are stronger. I love It's a great song. It's how we understand at times God's character, identity, strength. He is the strongest. He is the most holy. The holiest one. He is the highest. But we are reminded in drawing these stark lines humanity here, divinity here, that even when we say strongest, we're using human terms to define God who cannot be defined in human terms. This is where the concept of the fear of God comes in. Because you might fear somebody who's stronger than you, particularly if you think they might be against you. And we're getting to that here. And when we talk about the wrath of God, it might seem like God's against us. I'm giving the, the ending away to the beginning. He's not. But as you think that someone might be so much stronger than you, you can fear them. If you take that right off of the chart and say, they're so much stronger than me that I can't even think of it in those terms. Stronger or strongest doesn't work because the base, the definition, is my own understanding. God is so far beyond our understanding that that's what it means that we have reverence and fear towards God. He is other than us. He is other than you. That's the stark picture that here is humanity and here is God. This is chapter 3. The, the, the first half of chapter 3 here is the story of humanity. That's what we're looking at today. And it comes out from this talk of the wrath of God. Here are what people are like. All people. You get a lot of those big words, descriptive words, like nobody seeks God. There's nobody who really is after God. What I'm talking about is God in this so much higher than us that we can't even in our human understanding talk about this. The outline of the text is what I have behind me. First, Paul is going to spend a number of verses talking about uh, or answering the question, are, aren't are we special? Don't we have some kind of advantage over other people because we have the law? This is humanity and all attempts at religion. And we can think that in this place. We have, I mean, you can think that right now. You have, you're a little bit closer to God because you go to this church than somebody who never goes to church. That's, that's what I'm saying is, that's betraying the thinking that we can so easily fall into. We're privileged, we're special, we're above average. Actually, Paul's going to say, yes, you are privileged and special. But it's for a different reason than the one you think. I mean, there's there's jokes about this, right? Some of you read Garrison Keillor, Lake Wobegon days, and he says every child in Lake Wobegon is above average. I think our schools can sometimes fall to this. Everybody gets marked above average. How could that possibly be? Is there any advantage in being a Jew? This text says. So that's the first part. The second part, and it's in a way the answer to the question: Are we privileged, or do we have an advantage? <coughs> Excuse me, the second part is a diatribe from Paul. So if all you get when you leave today is a, is a correct understanding of the word diatribe, I won't be happy, but at least it's something. You know, you say, you really that's a real diatribe against me. This is a diatribe. Here's what a diatribe means. I'll do this. You ask me, Todd, is the sermon going to be long today? And I answer by saying, it'll be the perfect length. And you say, well, are you the one to judge that? And I say, I think I am today. You see what I'm doing? I'm, I'm not letting you speak, but I'm putting the words in your mouth. You rehearse the arguments you have with family members or the conversations, and you put the words in their mouth first, and then you answer the questions that they haven't asked. Or you're anticipating the ones that you think they would ask. That's a diatribe. And Paul, in, in this section of the book of Romans, takes up a diatribe when he's going to answer, here's what I think you're asking when you say, aren't, don't we have an advantage? And there's four things there. And here they are. Is there any advantage at all in having the religious law, in being a Jew? And Paul answers, yes, much in every way. We'll get to what he means by that in, in a few minutes. Secondly, you ask me, Paul says, if all are unrighteous, and these are questions you guys ask too, if all are declared unrighteous, then isn't God's whole plan a failure? I think this sometimes, just so you know. Your pastor thinks this. If the good news is that most people spend eternity separated from God, I struggle that that's good news. And, and I think that, that it may look like a failure on God's part. That's, I mean, I don't doubt God's presence and all that, but I, but I do wrestle with thoughts like that. And Paul anticipates that question and says, you say to me, if all are unrighteous, then isn't God's plan a failure? And Paul's answer is, look, if God is true, God remains true, even if everybody's a liar. It's an interesting answer. Thirdly, if all are unrighteous, then how can it be fair that there would be judgment? All are unrighteous so everybody gets wiped out. Seems great. There shouldn't be any judgment if all are unrighteous because... It's just totally unfair. And then Paul says, his answer is, you really don't want a world where there's no judgment, do you? You really don't want that world. And the final question is, and Paul takes this one as absolutely silly. The fact that we still have this in some thinking in Christian circles um, shows that we love silliness and ridiculousness. But Paul says, and you ask me, well then shouldn't we just go on sinning more if God... You know, if God uh, uh, saves us from our sin or or just pronounces judgment and we're wiped out, shouldn't we just go on sinning more so that God is somehow proven better? And Paul's answer to that is, you really don't get it at all. pretty much it. So that's a key section of the text. But it's all to set up a scene at the end that I want to get to, get you to. And the scene is going to be a scene that I, I call a scene of leveling. Where we spoke a few weeks ago about... Uh, the gospel is going to be presented. But for us to see the gospel, to, to, to receive and respond to the gospel, the, the mountains have to be made low and the valleys have to be raised up so that there's a horizon and then the good news comes. And what I'm trying to get you to is the place that all of humanity, yourself, myself, everybody here and everybody who's not here, is leveled out. No one's better than the other one so that we might see what God has to say to us. And this question of, well, why religion is a start to that. But it gets pretty tough from here, because then there's a little bit of an Old Testament survey. A little bit. What I mean is Paul starts quoting a bunch of verses to say, look how bad everybody is. So, sorry that you have to hear this in church, but Paul does this. This is what's called, and I'm so grateful that we can speak like this in church, but this is what's called the depravity of sin. Paul is going to speak about it in the next section, and it's 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 um, cut out of the text in your in your reading, right? Because the reason it's it's written like that is that it's taken from other parts of the Bible. So Paul's quoting Psalms, and then I've got the list here. He's quoting Psalms, and then Ecclesiastes, <clears throat> and then Psalms again, and then another chapter in Psalms, and then Isaiah, and he's putting it all together with this physical imagery to say things like. Their throats are an open grave their tongues are just uh, are just to practice deceit deception their mouths their mouths are full of curses their lips like snake venom their feet are swift to shed blood And their eyes have no fear of God. Now when he's saying there, he's saying all of humanity, this is the description. This is the depravity of sin. So as your minister or as a minister in this place, I'll put a question before you right now that you may have talked about in Bible study groups or somewhere else. Is all sin the same? Is all sin the same? And, you know, you've maybe had this conversation in in home group or wherever. All sin is, all sin is I'll give you the correct answer. You ready for it? All sin is not the same. It's not the same. Now, what Paul's saying here, though, is humanity is all the same. This is talking about the depravity of sin. But it's not saying that it's the same thing to, you know, disobey my parents and, and take that thing or, or that, that I wasn't supposed to take, uh, as, as same as it is to kill somebody. They're not the same things. They're totally different. So what's the depravity of sin that's being spoken about? The depravity of sin that's being spoken about is of extent, not degree. You can write that in your notes. The depravity of sin that Paul is talking about in this text is of extent. In other words, this touches all of humanity. It's not of degree. It doesn't mean that you have sinned just as bad as somebody else. It's just that that divide between God and humanity is so big that the distinction between one person and another person is totally irrelevant compared to the distinction between any person and God. Do you have it? This is the depravity of sin. All of humanity. Another way of looking at this is, as, and the text kind of plays with this too, as kind of an infection. Our minds, verse 11, have no understanding. Our motives, what guide our actions, are corrupted. Our relationships, in our relationships, we're honestly, this is remarkable in in our lives, in our relationships, we're willing to hurt other people for our own gain. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's of other people. This is how depraved we are. I mean, I know most of you in this place. And I'm so grateful to know you. But one of the hard truths is that just about every one of us in here, I don't know if there's an exception. I'll say every one of us in here. We have done and at times been willing to do things that hurt other people for our own benefit. Sometimes we can't even see it. This is the extent including our relationship with God. There is no fear of God in their eyes, Paul says. So that what's happening here is that you can look at it as your whole body, or you can look at it as an infection that is complete to all of these ways that you would see the world. So, you get to verse 20. What's the advantage then in having the religious law? If this is the way it works, then everybody is corrupted by sin then what possible advantage is there in having the religious law? And the answer is very clear. I could give you some, you know, religious, nice, clever way of speaking about it, but it's super clear in the text. This is one of those. Question three says this. Here's the answer. That's how easy it is. The law is of an advantage and and makes, you know, these people have a different standing. The advantage of the law is that, verse 20, through the law we become conscious of sin. That's it. The law doesn't accomplish anything in its own sense. The law can't bring life. People can treat it as if it can. And that's what religious people do all the time. They live as if the religious law brings life. They try to make people. You can see this. The more Christian an environment is at times, the more you can see this, right? Whether it's a Christian church or a Christian gathering or a Christian school. thing where there's, there's a standard to, to meet. And so at times, some of the challenge, even in the best of these places, can be, well, if we just can create somebody who looks good, then that's really great. Because we think that that the law or religion can bring life, but it can't bring life. What it does do is show us the distance between God and humanity. Earlier, at the end of chapter 2, and then the very beginning of this chapter, the, the way that it's put out is, is there any advantage in the law or in circumcision? I didn't mention circumcision at all last week, even though it's a big part of the text. And basically what it is, is circumcision is a symbol of their religious standing. That's all that it is. But they had taken circumcision, and, and, and what they had done is they had said, if, if, if you have this sign, then the sign itself accomplishes something. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's, that's not the way it works. So the law and, and the symbols of the law show us the distance between God and humanity. And by the way, you want this distance, you want God to be a lot better than every person that ever lived in the history of the world. Including and especially you and me. Paul is a good and faithful guide in this text. This is not a depressing text. This is a life-giving text. It might be hard truth, but Paul is going through this truth because he wants you to see the truth so that you can see the life and love of God, the creator of the whole universe, for you. And Paul is going to take us in this gift of his. He's going to take us to the end of ourselves. He's going to say, you think you're so good, you think you're so special, either because you're religious or because you're sophisticated and whatever else it is, attractive or successful. I'm going to tell you that there's no one who seeks after God. But this is a gift that Paul is doing this for us. Trust me on this. Some of you know this more than I do, but I'm learning it already. Trust me on this. The last thing you want. Now, I think it's harder to hear this when you're younger, but some some young people have a real maturity in this regard too. The last thing that you want is for the biggest reality in your life to be yourself. If nobody's told you that before. Now, every one of you battles with this every day, though. How am I feeling right now? I think I'm feeling kind of down. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. How's that going to work out? What's going on? Me, me, me. I'm riding my bike the other day, along last Monday, along Dollerton Highway. I was heading from, like I was going from east to west. And I got to some of that new development there And and they're putting a ton of condos in and everything else. And they've got the signs already for a new grocery store. I love things like this. Like on 13th and Lonsdale, it says, Whole Foods coming soon. And then you look underneath, it says 2018. You know. Anyway, I don't know when this grocery store is coming, but I bet it'll beat Whole Foods on Lonsdale. It says, Stongs, the new grocery store is going to open on Dalton Highway, be built and open, Stongs. And then the little tagline, the slogan says, A grocery store built around you. Beautiful. It's built around me. I'm so glad it's not built around you. You are literally the center. And here's what I say about that. If that's a grocery store, that's okay because I know that's just marketing. I still find it a bit depressing. A life, you know, a grocery store built around you, it's a bit depressing. But here's what's the most depressing possibility of all. A life built around you. That your life would be built around you. I am left to myself. And if I am left to myself, eventually, this is a reality that people don't want to face, but eventually death swallows everything up. The advantage of the law is that the law helps us to see that this is a horror and not a freedom. This is not an occasion for celebration. My life, my accomplishments, my good—we have a good—we uh, hist- have a good history in terms of some Christian people who taught us this, and Martin Luther, with all of his flaws—and they were many. Uh, our church wouldn't exist without him. It's interesting, but. He's just—he's just, he's just a, a wreck of a guy in a lot of ways too, and I always think of him when I think of this because he had a little line in one of his table talk writings. Where he basically said, "What do I know? Miserable, stinking bag of worms that I am." I, I like I, and but I don't—I don't see him. Sometimes he could be knowing his story, but in most cases, he's not just bashing himself. He's not like oh, poor me. I can't do anything. I don't. You know, It's not that. It's not woe is me. It's a healthy view that if I had and you had, we'd actually get along a lot better in this world. The Desert Fathers who came a long time before Martin Luther. Well, I just want you to remember this quote. What is pleasing to God comes into being when all human righteousness is irretrievably gone. The Desert Fathers, who would be people that you would look up to spiritually, um, they kind of kept the Christian faith alive at a time of great corruption and and difficulty hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And people would go out to seek their advice. They would live in cells and in the desert and in caves. And they were weird in some ways. They battled the demons and all of this kind of stuff. They would bash their own body. You know, they would would be conscious of the sin of talking too much, and so they would put rocks in their mouths to remind themselves not to talk too much. They were weird but they were also really, really spiritual and really, really after the mind of Christ. And there's a few stories and many sayings of the desert fathers and one of them is this. Somebody comes to one of the desert fathers, this is an old man, but it means a desert father, and says, I've heard that some people see angels. What should I desire in my life? And the old man says, oh, don't don't desire to see angels. If you're going to ask God one thing, don't ask God to see angels. Ask God that you would be able to see your own sin. Then you'll be blessed. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we think if we go after supernatural expressions, you know, the fire came down or whatever it was, that that is the thing that will ultimately, like, ignite our faith. No. An awareness of your own sinfulness helps you to be open to the things of God. Or my favorite one, I, just, I, I have this in my mind all the time. <laughs> I rarely say it, but I'm thinking it a lot, just so you know. And I'm not trying to cast myself as a wise spiritual father, but anyway. A group of people went and found Abba Siswa, Sisuos or whatever his name was, and, and, and they were going to get advice on a number of issues, I think political and civil and whatever else. And they go and they find this Abba in, in his cave in his cell, and, and they say, uh, you know, we're, we're here to ask you a few questions. Can you give us some advice? And his answer is this. Forgive me, I am an ignoramus. Is he saying, he doesn't have any wisdom or knowledge or intellect. No. He's telling them, the first thing that you need to know is that before God, you and I are the same. Why are you asking me anything? And then he'll give them some advice. Precisely when we recognize that we are sinners do we perceive and this is this old language we could say brothers and sisters but precisely when we recognize that we are sinners do we perceive that we are brothers. There's no other way. I can't be your brother in Christ if we both don't know that in ourselves we're sinners. Because if you think you're higher than me I can't, we can't be in company. If I think I'm higher than you There's nobody in this room. And there's a number of people in this room who do this to themselves. They push themselves lower, thinking that other people in the room are better than them. It's just the other way at the same problem. I want to show you the saddest ad, and it's a sad version of it because the only place I could find it on YouTube was somebody obviously held up their iPhone to the TV. It's like 12 seconds long, and you'll see it. I was going to mention the game, but I won't. Um, You'll see this ad on TV probably today. It's the saddest ad on TV. I don't really know the nature of hell, but when I watch this ad, it reminds me of what hell must be like. Ready? Siri, play. I'm
0: not like
1: everybody else. i You've no sadder ads than that, don't you? It's an old Kinks song, which I always think like they, some of these bands just must love that their ads are being used for selling cars. But he says, Siri, play. And then the song starts and it's coastal highway. And the song says, I'm not like everybody else. I'm not like everybody else. And I don't want to, it's a bit different in there, but one of the lyrics in the song is, and I don't want to live my life like everybody else. And why is he not different? Why is he different than everybody else? Because he has enough money to buy a nice car that he can talk to. And that, my friends, is hell. Because I know where the road goes. Because I've been in the hospital with people like him. Dying. You want to be not like everybody else. You want to be special. You want to have some standing in the world. But Paul is going to remind you graciously and wonderfully in this text. Nobody seeks after God. We're all on the same playing field. And he's going to say not only in terms of the success that you think you can achieve in this life. He's done that earlier in the book. He's going to say even in terms of religion. Here is what religion is. this is I just love this quote. God can only be known when men of all ranks are grouped together upon one single step. And this is what religion is. some of you have been in religious circles where you've experienced this, but you haven't been able to maybe describe it. Or you haven't had any power in those circles, so other people have, like, oppressed you down. Religion and the law is like an empty canal that speaks only of the water that's not running through it. You can build churches on it. You can build systems on it. You can build churches for generations that are only empty canals. Big, powerful places. And here's the end of the text. I'm bringing you to this point to see this leveling that every mouth may be stopped. Stopped. every mouth may be stopped. So here's the scene before we get to communion. It's, you could play it in some ways as if it's a defendant in court trying to get the last words in before a judge renders judgment. But, but, oh, no, there's one more thing. There's one more thing. There's one more thing. And the judge says, I've heard enough. The end of the text says that our mouths may be stopped, or in other versions, that we would be silenced. And here's the scene of the silencing. That horizon that I described... There it is. And here's I want to try, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will help you to picture this and feel this. You might picture people that have gone from this life, from your company, beside you, standing, looking out at this horizon. I picture and I you know it's all fanciful and imaginative, but I picture all of humanity gathered on this level ground. And everybody's just waiting for something. Judgment to be rendered. History to come to a conclusion? Something. And this is the reality. What most people think is that something is death. Death is the last thing that swallows everything up. That's still what most people in our world think, and it's still what many Christians, unfortunately, can think. We stand waiting for a terror. And if you picture the scene, here's how I picture it, I begin to be able to hear my own breathing and then the breathing of the people beside me. Nobody has anything to do. Wait. The camera pans way up and just sees this huge expanse of humanity and then right back down to where you are and you hear your breathing again before the universe and are you waiting for a wave of destruction to just swallow it all up like if you've imagined yourself being in a plane crash or something what would it be like i'm sitting here and if this thing goes down is there going to be like a wave of flame or the plane itself or water just take this whole thing out it's just the ultimate ending you don't need a long scene paul has faithfully brought us to this Standing place. There is nothing more for you to offer. All of our decorations are gone. All of our identity markers are gone. The preacher standing on that ground has no words left to say. The athlete has no impressive strength to put on display. The successful person is not there with their car and their house and whatever numbers they've compiled. The worship leader has no song to sing or even a note to play. The respected business person is in a place where they have no stature. The funny or quick-witted friend has no joke or remark to take the air out of the moment. There is no net worth standing on this ground. In fact, nothing that can be counted has meaning. There's no Experience for the resume. There's no quotient of cool or youth or appearance. There's nothing on the ledger. There's no way for you to pay or buy or trade or barter. And hear this. This is the most challenging thing of all. There's not even any faith to put you in a higher place than somebody else. And the scene is going to close. In two weeks we'll pick it up again. But let me tell you, as the scene closes, the most incredible thing happens. Just pray that the Holy Spirit can help you to see this or feel this in some way. You're waiting for that rendered judgment, the completion of all history. And then in this moment, this second, less than a second, less than, you realize it's good. How could it be good? How could it be good that I'm offered after all of this I was here to die and what's going to play out in the rest of the book is going to swallow that scene up wholly and completely but it will do so with full and abundant life like you've never seen and all the decorations that you thought you brought to bring your life you have to leave them there now you may pick them up again but they're not going to they're not ever going to, in your faith, be things that distinguish you from another person as if you're better. They're going to be things like God has blessed you with this giftedness that you might live this full and abundant life. It's good. It's the words of Jesus Christ when He said, and I picture them over this scene, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. We're about to hear the best news that we've ever heard. And so this is a little hymn as we go to communion. An old hymn. I don't know the rest of it. Some of you might. But I'm there now on that level ground. I haven't yet heard the reality of all the good news, but I know it's coming. And I say, with nothing left, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, thou that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee Has not, had, hadst thou not chosen me." My heart owns none before thee. For thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. We have the good news. We don't need to sell religion to this world. We have the good news. Stopped mouths, even mine. And now God's going to overwhelm us with his goodness. We will hear, we will see, and by God's grace we will receive. Let me pray and let me pray for communion and Richard you can hear you can hear my right, so Richard's going to come and break the bread for us. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this reminder in this text, that we can face the truth of human history and the reality of human sin, but that doing so is not a bad news story. Help us to be poised in that place to see, even those of us who've been Christians for a a number of years, to see the good news in a way that we've never seen it before. To realize that we're not defined by any of our accomplishments, which must be so little in your eyes, except that you love us. We're not defined by any of our accomplishments or by any of our failures, though the world will define us as such, to be sure. We are defined instead by the love that you have for this whole world. Thank you for making us conscious of our own sinfulness, that we would have eyes to see the life that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray for this communion as we take it, without much introduction now, but with the reminder that it is in Jesus Christ that we know full and abundant life because it is in Jesus Christ that humanity and divinity are brought together and there is not the distance on that plane. We are brought together in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are forgiven of our sins. The bread is broken as a reminder, Lord Jesus, that this is your body given for us. And the cup is taken as a reminder. This is your blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We can see ourselves in this whole world differently because of who you are and what you've done for us. So may we receive well in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.